0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the fun continues. Acts chapter 27. Let's turn in our Bibles to that. This is the 21st study in our series, Paul's Long Road to Rome. It's been a long series. And next week we'll finish it off in chapter 28. A lot of people think it's boring, but my favorite channel on television is the Weather Channel. See, we have a few fans, but I I was told, I was told after second service, they said, you know the weather channels like mtv for old people <laughs> but seriously i've liked it now for a long time and uh, what i like about it one of the things i enjoy is the special segment they have called storm stories and these are real life experiences of people who have weathered storms different kinds hurricanes tornadoes skiers who've been through avalanches and made it uh, i saw one that Uh, was a group of people who were victims of a shipwreck and they survived that only to face shark-infested waters. And uh, everyone that goes through, there's a common thread, I've noticed, the ones who are interviewed, they all have their unique story. But they will often cite poor planning as the reason they got into the mess, whether it's the captain's poor planning of not reading the signs or skiers being out where they shouldn't have been, etc. Well, I'm going to read something to you. This isn't by somebody who weathered a storm, though it was a personal storm. This is written by a bricklayer who went through a very traumatic experience in his life. Now, he's writing this from his hospital room to his insurance company. I am writing, he writes, in response to your request for additional information. In block number three of the accident reporting form, I put poor planning as the cause for my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. One day, on the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a ten-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to lower them to the ground in a barrel using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building at the 10th floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went to the roof, loaded 500 pounds of bricks, and then I went back down to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks." Now, you will note in block 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. (laughs) Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the fifth floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull and the broken collarbone. I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately this time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 30 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11 (laughs) of the accident reporting form. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the fifth floor, I met that barrel coming up again. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and lacerations of my legs and lower body. The second encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell to the pile of bricks. And unfortunately or, and fortunately, only three of my vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks, in pain, unable to stand, watching the empty barrel ten stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind. I let go of the rope. Poor fella. We are reading in chapter 27 and it goes into chapter 28, Paul's last voyage on record. He may have taken more, we're not sure, but this is his last trip, he makes it to Rome and he faces as he goes one of the worst storms on record. This is Paul's storm story. He faces a literal storm. At the same time, it's metaphoric. We all face hardship, affliction, trials, storms, you might say. And you know, I think if I were going to write a biography on the life of Paul the Apostle, I might give it that title, Storm Stories. Because one after another he faced in his life. Well, Paul had the presence of mind to not let go of the Lord during his storm story. And though we won't be able to read all of chapter 27, it's just too long, this incident, we're going to look at a few verses. And there's two major truths that surface as we read. One is general, the other is specific. One is universally true for all people. It's a certainty, the other is a possibility. The certainty is that storms bring change. For everyone, you can't go through a period of hardship without coming out different on the other end, for better or worse. The second is a possibility. Yes, storms bring change, that's a certainty, but the possibility is storms can also bolster your confidence. And that is true if you're a follower, especially of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to take you back. Not to verse 1, but to chapter 26, the last verse, verse 32. This is where really I want to take you in the beginning of the story for this reason. Last time we were together over this issue, we were in chapter 26 where we discovered Paul had three trials that he faced. Three court dates. One with a guy named Felix, the other was Festus, and finally King Agrippa. And that's where we pick up the story Verse 32, Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man, that is Paul, might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And when it was decided that we should set sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augusta Regiment. Now, you might say that Paul is getting exactly what he always wanted, sort of. His dream has come true, kind of. He wants to go to Rome, but this represents a change of plans. You see, Paul had planned to take a missionary journey to Rome. If you remember back a few studies, we know that Paul wrote a letter to the Romans where in chapter 15, he said, I plan to come to you shortly, and after visiting you, I want to go to Spain. Now, in Paul's mind, he's thinking, I'm going to go on a missionary journey as a clergyman. Here he goes as a convict. He is a prisoner of the Roman government. So the destination was correct, but the method in which he went was not what he had in mind. This is not a Disney cruise he's on. This is not an episode from The Love Boat. He is a prisoner aboard a grain cargo ship from Alexandria, Egypt, all the way to Rome, one that accepted prisoners and got paid for it. So this is a floating prison. Not only that, but the trip itself changed plans. Their itinerary was different. Beginning in the 14th verse... They encounter an incredible storm, one that brought dread. Just the name, Eurya is the name of this storm that blew from the northeast, struck terror into the heart of every sailor in that day and age. Which means the original itinerary was changed because they were at the mercy of the winds and had to let the ship blow its course through. Now there's an old Jewish proverb that says this, Man makes plans, and God changes them. And which one of us haven't made an itinerary of exactly how we're planning our life, and God steps in and goes, Ah, I don't think so. Last time I checked, I'm God. And so, this is what I want for your life. I'm changing your plans altogether. Somebody once said, God speaks to us through the regularity with which He disappoints our Plans. Paul would say, I understand that. I had never planned on being a pastor. I wanted to go into medicine, thought music may be an alternative. Then I thought photography would be a great thing, but I had never planned originally on pastoring. But the Bible says in Isaiah, My ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. So here we are writing the script for our life. God has editing rights and says, "Uh, I'm in charge of this production. And storms will change your plans. There's a second thing that storms will do. They'll change your comfort. Now, we, we know that. They always do. Anytime you suffer or are afflicted, face a trial your comfort level goes down. I want you to notice something here. Verse 4. Notice how many times this is mentioned. When we had put to sea, verse 4, from there we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. antias is the word that is used for contrary. It signifies a wind, a strong headwind that was against them. And when we had sailed over the sea which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Verse 7. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snitus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone, passing it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens. I don't know how, how that could have been named that near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent, and sailing was now, noticed dangerous because of the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster. If you've ever done any sea travel at all, you sympathize with what you just read. If you served time in the Navy or... You take a long trip by sea, went into stormy weather, or you've done deep sea fishing. My first experience on the ocean was with my father. My dad wanted to take his boys deep sea fishing. We were, we were geeked. We couldn't wait. But I had never been out on the ocean. And we went down to Newport Beach, and there's this outfit called Davy Jones Locker, which outfits you to go on a boat and spend a few days out at sea and really go out to the deep. So we went out. Well, I wasn't used to this kind of motion back and forth. And I didn't have what they call your sea legs. I discovered I probably never would get them. That night was a fitful sleep. I was tossing and turning and getting sick again and again. And, and I would make my way outside to the edge of the ship and empty my stomach. And, uh, people running the boat said, oh, don't worry, it'll attract the fish. (laughs) Well, I'm thinking, I don't want to eat those fish. (laughs) I'm not interested in fishing now. The second experience that I had was sailing across the English Channel by boat to France. And it started out really smooth, and then we got into some strong headwinds and tempestuous seas, and it was just for me hilarious to watch how these prim and proper English gentlemen and ladies deal with this as they were getting sick pardon me I have to make my way to the edge of the boat (laughs) as they hurled off the side I just thought this it was a classic moment well we're we're reading about ancient times there's no radio radar sonar no GPS they are at the mercy of the winds and they're being driven And so this journey, it'd be an understatement to say, is uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable, very unpredictable, which describes our own storms in life. We don't like them because they're uncomfortable. Now every now and then you'll find a person who says, you know, I love change. Let me reinterpret that. What they really mean by that is, I love change as long as I'm controlling that change, and it's comfortable change. But when they're not in control and it's uncomfortable, they don't like it anymore. Nobody does. But perhaps, perhaps this is the very benefit of the storm. Perhaps storms are beneficial because we get a little too comfortable. In life, a little too lethargic, a little too complacent, and boy, storms can knock you off that rut that you get in. When the United States was being settled a couple hundred years ago, the roads weren't paved, it was just dirt paths, and that was often very dangerous when it would rain because, you know, the, the wagons had those deep wooden with metal wheels that would dig deep grooves into those roads and form ruts. In fact, there's a sign on one of the roads out in the West that said, avoid this rut or you'll be in it for the next 25 miles. Perhaps the reason God allows discomfort in our lives is to get us out of these ruts so we'll lean more on Him. So you just got that new job. You got it wired. You feel at ease. Everything's good. So you think, I can just sort of settle down now. Two weeks later, you get laid off. Now, it could be that God has a better job for you. Two weeks ago, you weren't open to that possibility. Now you are. It could be that the Lord allows, in part, the storm to occur to get us to trust hard on Him. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture to you out of the book of Jeremiah, and I want you to listen up to this. God, through the prophet, is describing a group of people that have had it very easy in life. And listen to his description. This is of Moab, 4811 of Jeremiah. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Now the metaphor that is used is that of wine in those days. When they would make wine, they'd put it in clay pots. And wine, when put on the shelf and left to itself, the sludge settles Because of inactivity. So to cure that, the dregs, they pour it from pot to pot to keep it active. And people at ease can easily get into a rut and become very too comfortable and lethargic. And we need to be poured from vessel to vessel. So the storm does that, doesn't it? Keeps us active, actively trusting, actively leaning on him. There's a third thing that storms will change. This is the best part. It's not the best part that it changes your comfort or changes your plans, but it does change your values. Now look, look with me at verse 14. Not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. This was a violent wind that brought huge wave surges that typically capsized great vessels at sea. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground on the certest sands, they struck sail, and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now, follow the progression of this Euroclidon, this storm that happens. Because what we see here is that what was important one day isn't important the next day. Their values shift. At first, they head into the storm. They want to secure the boat. Not just the people, but the boat, all the cargo, keep it all safe. But the storm gets worse and worse and worse. So they start thinking different about what's valuable. Verse 18, they lightened the ship. That means they threw the cargo overboard. Verse 19, they threw out the ship's tackle. That's a broad term for furniture. Chairs, tables, chests that you'd carry stuff in. Now go all the way down to verse 37. Let's skip ahead. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So you've got a captain, crew, And prisoners on a grain ship that carried grain, wheat from Alexandria, Egypt to Caesarea and then through the Mediterranean to Rome. And when they had eaten enough, they thought this was our last meal, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Now, wait a minute. They threw out the wheat into the sea the very purpose they're setting sail is to bring grain from Egypt to Rome. You only get paid on delivery. The very thing that was profitable to them, they got rid of. That's the whole point. Storms change what you think is important. You think it's so important one day to have something, but the next day it's like, you know what, I just want to survive. And you see, storms turn salesmen into survivors. They turn entrepreneurs into endurers. Because the very thing you think is so important today, you might think is worthless tomorrow. Years ago, there was a guy in Europe. He was from Turkey. He was a wrestler, and he won all the wrestling matches. He was called Yusuf Hassan, And Yusuf was 350 pounds. He was a big boy. In fact, they nicknamed him Yusuf the Terrible Turk. He beat everybody in Europe and he decided to challenge a guy in America named Strangler Lewis. He was our best. He weighed 200 and some odd pounds. So Yusuf the Turk came over to America, wrestled Strangler Lewis, Strangler lost. Yusuf the Turk won and the prize money was $5,000. Which Yusuf demanded be paid to him in gold. They paid him in gold coins. He stuffed the gold coins in a money belt around his waist to make a statement and boarded the ship, the USS Burgoyne, on his way back to Europe. I think you know where I'm going with this. The ship started to sink. People dove off. Lifeboats came to rescue them. But the weight around Yusuf's body was such that it plunged him down into the sea. He discovered in that moment the truth of Proverbs 11.4. Riches will not profit in the day of wrath. It was over for Yusuf, the terrible Turk. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a hospital with families, in an emergency room setting, where this family had just had a fight a day or a few hours before. And suddenly they're at a point in their lives where there may not be a tomorrow for one of them. It's interesting the change of values that occurs in that storm. You see, a couple hours ago, a day ago, each of those family members were sure that in that argument their point was important enough to not let down. And they argued and they thought it was so valuable to stay angry. But not today. Today there's a different value. Today there's the value of life and eternity. And suddenly the storm brings such clarity, it's like somebody gave you a new set of eyes. So storms will change your comfort. It will change your plans, and they will change your values. That's a given. That's a certainty. This typically happens to anyone. But now there's a second point I want to make that's here, that rises to the surface of this chapter. And it's not a certainty, but it is a possibility. And it should be true for every follower of Christ. And that is that storms can bolster confidence. It's amazing as you read through this. To read about Paul the Apostle, we're going to start with him in verse 21. He, he like a leader, rises to the surface. And you know, storms will either make you or break you. And how you face them depends on who you are going into them. But they tend to either make you, as Ben been often said... Better or bitter. Better or worse. You either cave and crumple underneath the weight of them or you have confidence in the midst of them. Now look at verse 21, how this guy takes charge. Here's Paul. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not assailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. God will love him. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men. For I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. Here's a guy who's confident. He's confident in God's plan. He's confident in God's promises. Now, don't misinterpret verse 21 as arrogance. I I don't really hear Paul saying, Told you so, told you... I don't see that. I don't think it's arrogance. I think this is the voice of experience. You've got to keep something in mind. Paul had been on the Mediterranean a bunch of times. He was experienced. In fact, I read uh, the report of one guy named uh, Ernst Hanken, who cataloged all of the journeys of Paul's life and figured that there were 11 trips so far Paul had taken out on the Mediterranean before this one. And that he cataloged 3,500 miles by sea. So Paul knew what it was like to be on this body of water. But it's not just experience. Here's a guy filled with hope, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he has confidence in God's plan and God's promises. Now, I want to close by giving you three anchors. Okay, I'm going to be your meteorologist now. I'm going to give you three anchors. These are anchors that tethered Paul in this storm, and these are three anchors that will keep you secure in anything you face. Number one is the anchor of ownership. Look at the 23rd verse. Paul says, There stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong. Knowing that God owned Paul brought him confidence and kept him tethered in this storm. Question Do you belong to God? Does he own you? Before you answer that, you have to answer this. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you've given him control? You've surrendered your life. You've said, here's the pink slip of my life. It's yours. You own me. You're in charge of my life. That makes a big difference. Because it means whenever you're going through a storm, you really don't need to go, I can't believe you. Wait a minute. You don't own you anymore, remember? You gave yourself away to the Lord. You're His property. Now, the Bible speaks of this ownership of God owning us in a few different ways. Way number one, as a father owns and protects his children. First John chapter 3, we're called the children of God. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? That just as a mom and a dad and a home keep care and control of the kids in those early years and protect them, that we're children of God. By the way, you're not a child of God just because you're born on the earth. You're a child of God only if you've been born again. And by that new birth, you've given control of your life to Him. Another way the Bible speaks of this ownership is that of a shepherd owning his sheep. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and I am known by my own. The shepherd owns the sheep. A third way is that of a slave to his master. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, Let a man consider us as servants or bond slaves of Christ. There was an old gentleman who seemed always, I should say, even keeled in life, at at peace, in just about any situation. Well, a young guy came up to him and said, Let me ask you something. What do you do when you face a temptation or a trial, a storm? The old man said, I look up to heaven and I say, God, your property's in danger. That's a healthy perspective, isn't it? Paul believed that. God owns me. He is the God to whom I belong. I'm His property. That's an anchor in a storm. Let me, let me offer you a second anchor. If the first one is the anchor of ownership, the second one is the anchor of service. Notice that verse once again. The God to whom I belong and whom I Serve. You see, this apostle knew that he was doing business for God. You might say, he knew he was God's rep. I'm a representative of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to make a statement. I want you to listen very carefully to it. As a child of God, owned by God, as a person who's in serving the Lord, that's what your life's primary goal is, you are invincible until God is done with you. Now listen to that statement. You are invincible. Nothing can harm you until God's done with you. And when God's done with you, who wants to hang around anyway? When you think of what's in store for the child of God in heaven. Do you remember, and if you don't, I'll tell you, in Revelation chapter 11, there were there's a story of two witnesses who are going to come on the scene, I believe, in the future. We don't know exactly who they are. But these two witnesses that emerged during the tribulation period, this is what it says, Revelation 11. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast from the bottomless pit arises, makes war against them, prevails against them and kills them. Now, when does that happen? When they have finished their testimony. You might say, it's horrible that they were killed. Hey, it's going to happen to all of us. We're all going to go sometime, but they couldn't go. They couldn't die. They couldn't be prevailed on until they had finished their testimony. So in this storm, God tells Paul through the angel, Don't worry, Paul, you're going to testify to me in Rome. Paul has great assurance. Now, I want you to compare Paul's storm with another man going through another storm in the same sea, the Mediterranean. His name was Jonah. You remember that story, right? And you remember Jonah, this prophet of God, going through a storm in the Mediterranean, did he face that storm with confidence? Absolutely not. You know why? Because he didn't want to serve the Lord, right? He wanted to go another direction. God said, go to Tarshish. And uh, in Nineveh, he said, I'm going to the other direction. So here's one guy who says, I don't want to serve the Lord. He has no confidence in a storm. Another guy says, I'm owned by God, and I'm in the service of God, and those are two anchors for me in this storm. I know he owns me, and my life is given over to his service to do his bidding, to serve for his pleasure. And there's a third, and that's the 25th verse. It is the anchor of trust. Therefore, Paul says, take heart, men. Come on, everybody loves somebody like this in a storm, right? I mean, there's enough people in a storm who said, I knew it. We're all dead. I'm going to jump off now. But in the midst of a very tempestuous sea, you got a guy saying, Take heart, be courageous. For I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. It was Paul's deep conviction that God was a keeper of his promises that kept him anchored in this storm. Question. What do you do in a storm? What's your first initial reaction? As soon as something bad happens, what do you do? Call a therapist? Recite a mantra? Grab some beads to say some prayers? Or do you find the sure promises of God in His Word and say, I believe God, just as He told me? You know, when the Civil War was going to our country, the president then was Abraham Lincoln. And do you know that our president during that time was so depressed that the nation was at war that he often resorted to reading the Bible? They say, the biographers of the man, that Psalm 34 was his favorite psalm, or at least one of them. And I'm told, at least I've read, that if you were to look at Lincoln's personal Bible and turn to Psalm 34, you'd see a smudge where obviously his long, tapered finger often rested at a particular passage, Psalm 34, verse 4, which says, I'll read it to you, I sought the Lord, and He heard me, and He delivered me from all my fears. Great to know that you've got a leader that looks at those kind of promises when going through a storm in our nation. Well, here's Paul's long road to Rome. Never a dull moment with this guy, right? His whole life, all the way through his life, his life has been filled with trials, right? I mean, he was misunderstood in Jerusalem. He was stoned at Lystra, and I don't mean, I mean rocks. You got to clear that up these days. He was scoffed at in Athens, scorned in Ephesus, falsely accused in Caesarea. Now he faces a shipwreck in the Mediterranean. Now on top of all that, on top of all that, Paul said, I often had to face the misunderstanding and the scorn and the accusation from false brethren within the churches and false doctrine in the churches I founded. Stuart Briscoe used to say, the qualification of a pastor is he needs the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. I think Paul had a beautiful balance of all three. He was a very smart man, tender-hearted, but tough. And he made it through these storms. And I know that you've got your own storm stories. And I know that every time you go through an episode of a storm, you're a little different afterwards. I've got my stories. You've got yours. You get changed by that storm. Hopefully for the better. Which leads us to that final possibility the possibility that your confidence in God and your outlook in life could be at that high level if these three anchors are let out. Anchor number one, God owns me. Anchor number two, I'm serving Him. That's my aim. And anchor number three, I trust in His promises. Cory Ten Boom once wrote, "If God sends you on stormy paths, he provides strong shoes." Okay, be honest. You've often prayed, "Lord, I hate this stony path. Give me a smooth one." Why don't you just pray for stronger shoes? I would add to that, "If God sends us into stormy seas, look for the right anchors. Set them in place." and be confident. Let's stand together for a word of prayer. Father, we rise in our prayer as a testimony, an indication that when the storm comes, rather than being one that sinks in depression, we want to rise to the occasion. By knowing you own us, knowing we serve you, and knowing you keep your promises. Lord, for some, that has to begin today in a a new decision that is being made. A choice to give you control. A choice to say, I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to give my life back to the God who created me. And I'm going to give it to Him In totality, I'm going to surrender to him. We're all going to face affliction and storms. Some of us won't do very well. Others will do stellar. So, Father, I pray that that first step, since there is an eternal storm that is coming, a storm of judgment one day, that everybody would be prepared by placing their trust and refuge in Christ.